Hello, and thanks for joining in. I'm Jana Harmon, and you're listening to the Side B Podcast, where we listen to the other side. Each podcast, we listen to both sides of a story, from atheism to Christianity. It's commonly said that people are religious merely because the people around them are. But what happens when the people you love believe in God and you don't? You won't believe in God because you don't believe it's true, no matter what they say. At the end of the day, truth and reason are more important than the potential of lost relationships. There were several in my research with former atheists who chose truth over social gain or loss. Today's story with Philip wrestles with this difficult conundrum. If he remained an atheist, true to his belief in truth and reason, he would lose the one he loved. If he became a Christian, he would compromise his intellectual integrity. Conversion for social or emotional reasons alone was unthinkable. As an intellectual, a thinker, it would be immoral and dishonest. He would be denying his highest value, holding fast to truth. How could this situation be resolved? There is often a presumption that religion is irrational, far from objective truth and reason. For many, the assertion that scientific, philosophical, or historical truth can be found within the Christian worldview is simply nonsensical. Today through Philip's story, we'll explore whether or not rationality and truth can be found, can be grounded in a religious worldview, specifically Christianity, or whether or not religion merely serves a social or emotional purpose. We'll consider whether or not Christianity is worth believing, especially for the intellectual. Today we'll be talking with a true English gentleman and former atheist. Philip Vanderelst is a prolific writer and esteemed lecturer, working in and among forums discussing deep philosophical issues. Welcome to the Side B Podcast, Philip. It's wonderful to have you. Well, it's lovely to be with you, Jana, and I'm looking forward to our discussion. Terrific. Me too. As uh, Before we get to your story, Philip, I'd love to know more about, and for our listeners to know more about, where you live and your academic study and work? Okay. Well, I live in with my lovely wife, Rachel. I live in a little village in West Oxfordshire in England, about 22 miles northwest of Oxford. And that was uh, my old university where I studied politics, philosophy, and economics in the early 1970s. Um, I'm a freelance writer and lecturer. Um, and... Uh, I'm, and and so, so I spend my time um, writing stuff and getting it posted on the internet. Um, I wrote a book on C.S. Lewis some years ago, amongst other things. Um, I give occasional lectures on C.S. Lewis and indeed on Tolkien as well. Um, and most of my professional life has been, since leaving Oxford, um, has been actually in politics and journalism. So really, my world has been the world of ideas, and that's um, and that's what I've always been most concerned about, which is the battle for truth, the battle of ideas, um, the battle for hearts and minds, um, and that's what that's what makes me get up in the morning, gives purpose to my life. Um, so I, uh, yeah, so that's by way of some intellectual background and what I do in terms of my work. And I write about politics uh, and political philosophy, and I also write about now in the area of Christian apologetics. Um, yeah, so that more or less sums up what I do. Fascinating, fascinating. And so you live actually physically close to Oxford. Yes. yes. Is that right? Yes, that's right. And so I've got, I'm a, I'm a life member of the Oxford Union Debating Society, a famous debating society, which was set up in, in the 18, 1823. And um, I'm a former officer of that debating society, and so I have access to their wonderful libraries, one of the finest private libraries in the world. Um, so, I, yes, I have, I, have Ox, I have access to Oxford libraries, which is always a great blessing to a writer and researcher like myself. Uh, right. 
Yeah, that's that's wonderful. I can't imagine just being constantly inspired by being in that type of intellectual environment, constantly thinking and and discussing. And I, I remember visiting there in Oxford and the lovely bookstore, and and I didn't have access to the library, but it was just such a wonderful, wonderful place just to be, much less, I can't imagine being an academic there in that environment. What a privilege. It was lovely being there. So I know that you 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 are an Oxford man, as it were, yes. and that during your Oxford your time at Oxford, you weren't you weren't a Christian. So let's no, let's take this way back to right. when when your life started. Yes. Um, as there are many things that influence atheism, one of them being your family and your culture yes. and the place where you grew up. So why don't you take us back there to the beginning of your journey towards atheism and and talk us talk to us about how how your life began your early concepts of god um, how your parents kind of spoke into your life well i grew up i i had wonderful father and mother who were highly educated uh, professionals my mother had um, grown up and had her education in germany before the war and in switzerland during the war and had and was very good at very proficient in modern languages she became an interpreter um, and was in, was the youngest interpreter at the Nuremberg war crimes trials in 1946. My father was Belgian and uh, was trained as civil engineer and a physicist in, in, in the 1930s, the University of Université Libre de Bruxelles, which is the secular university in Brussels, because there's a Catholic one as well. And he was a brilliant scientist. And um, so my parental background was 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 I've got these highly educated parents, English on my mother's side, Belgian on my father's side, but neither of them, although they were upright people with a strong sense of uh, morality and and, uh, belief in excellence and truth, um, very impressive human beings, they they weren't Christians, they didn't believe in God. And one of the reasons for that was that they were, they'd been put off religion and belief in God by their experience of Catholicism or the Catholic Church. And here, Americans uh, need to understand something about European history, that on the mainland of continental Europe, particularly the Latin countries like France, Belgium, Spain, and so on, the main the main Christian witness was the Catholic Church. And um, the Catholic Church um, had been a persecuting church for uh, much of its history. Um, and so I grew up in a, in a mental universe where on one side you had reason and liberty and science and progress, and on the other, uh, religion, uh, authoritarianism, a persecuting church, um, and a generally obscurantist attitude to life. And so that was the kind of mentality that I grew up surrounded by. And in and in and in and in these continental Latin countries, there has been this cleavage of the kind of the intellectuals against the church sort of thing, um, which you haven't had in the same way in the English-speaking world. Um, and they personally, my father and mother, had personally bad experiences with Catholic uh, priests. Um, my when my father's father had died, um, his the local priest had bought up lots of the books that he had that my grandmother sold and um, the local priest burnt them because they were on the papal index as forbidden literature. So these kinds of experience um, had put off my parents, uh, off religion and and, and so on. Um, I do remember asking questions like, where does the universe come from? And I think my father said that, you know, the universe had always been there. Um, so it didn't need any particular explanation. And that was, of course, the view of many intellectuals um, uh, who didn't believe in God, that the universe was all, had always been there, so it didn't need any particular explanation. Um, and then, a, and then I, I, well, I didn't come across any, any Christian s- stories. I didn't come across the gospel or anything like that until I was at my first boarding school when I was eight years old. 
And then I came across all the scripture stories, you know, David and Goliath and uh, Abraham and Isaac, all those great stories from the Old Testament. And of course, some of the stories of the Gospels. And I was always top in scripture at school. Um, so I liked the stories and I remembered them. But I didn't en engage, I didn't come across any intellectual arguments for Christianity um, and for God until I was um, at my second school, my second boarding school, which will be the equivalent of your high schools in America. Uh, and that was when my father died uh, unexpectedly at, at, when I was only 17. And that was a great shock to my system. And so I was grief stricken and I suppose looking for meaning and comfort in life. And I dipped into C.S. Lewis, uh, into his book, Mere Christianity, his famous wartime broadcasts. And for a while they held my attention and I began to uh, have contact with uh, a, an intellectual argument for Christianity, which was beginning to make some sense. But um, I was interested in politics on, at that time. And when you're young, even when you suffer great grief, if you're in a nice school, if you've got good friends, you're young, you're resilient, you, you, the grief gets submerged underneath other things. You're, you're, you're thinking about life and what you're going to do, and do in the future and so on. And I started reading Bertrand Russell and Ayn Rand, an anti-Christian writer. So my interest in Lewis sort of died and I stopped reading mere Christianity and drifted away from thoughts about God. So when I get to Oxford, um, I, I, I don't believe in God. I'm not interested in religion. I'm only interested in politics and political philosophy and having a career in politics and journalism afterwards. So that's mm -hmm. where I was um, by the time I met my wife, Rachel, since we were both involved in conservative politics a few years after leaving Oxford. So that's oh. kind of galloped through my past. So, Philip, you have quite a, uh, it sounds like a very strong intellectual history. Yeah. And there was some uh, a very clear understanding of what the church was to you in terms of yes. perhaps some of the negative aspects of it. You heard some good stories, but you were more interested in truth and reason. And that, I think, were, were those stories that you read in the Bible were just merely stories, right? Yeah. Uh, what did you perceive God and Christianity and Christians and those stories to be? Was it mythological? Was it social construction? What was your thought about what religion was at that time? I didn't. I didn't really think very deeply about the stories. Um, uh, I. You know, it was. I, I suppose I regarded them on the same level as sort of, you know, the, the twelve labors of Hercules, or stories from Greek mythology, which I enjoyed, um, like story of Odysseus and the War of Troy and so on. So I, I, I didn't really think about them very much. Um, I, I did wonder whether there was a god because of this question, you know, where does the universe come from? But I, 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 I found it difficult to believe in God, because if God is good um, and our creator, um, why is there even suffering in the world? Why is there so much cruelty and, and um, you know, and suffering and disease and, and, and so forth? So I couldn't, although I was aware of the argument for God from intelligent design, it seemed to me that argument was cancelled out by the existence of evil and suffering. Um, and I remember I was in, and Bert, that was the argument of Bertrand Russell. And Ayn Rand, reading Ayn Rand as well as Bertrand Russell, made me think that um, worshipping God was really a kind of form of worshipping power. You know, you worship God because he's all powerful. And also uh, the, the, the story of the fall in the Garden of Eden, um, you know, eating, the, you mustn't eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it seemed to me to present a view of life where. God is this omnipotent power that doesn't want uh, human beings to think for themselves and uh, just to, to just but just to submit to him uh, so it was kind of so religion was a kind of form of self-abasement which was not worthy of human dignity and and anyone who cared about liberty so that that was a very jaundiced um, prejudiced um, uh, shallow view I had of of God derived from reading Bertrand Russell and Ayn Rand. Uh, so really, and not really encountering um, Christians who 
who could feed my intellect, apart from, you know, having dipped for a short while into C.S. Lewis. So then when I met my wife, Rachel, who was highly intelligent, and her Christian friends were also highly intelligent and lovely people, then I began to think, well, you know, that this began to challenge my prejudices and then made me think, well, perhaps I ought to go on a journey of discovery to see whether there are any good, whether there is any good evidence for the existence of God and the truthfulness of Christianity and the truth of the gospel. Um, so were you surprised to meet Christians who you thought are were deemed intelligent in your mind? Um, well, yes. I mean, I, you know, it's funny how how inconsistent people can be because I had there were intelligent. It was an intelligent chaplain, Christian chaplain. Uh, it was called Doctor Pugh at my school, at my um, uh, my 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 independent boarding school, uh, which I attended before going to university. And I remember some interesting conversation. I remember a conversation with him when I said to him, you know, why is it important whether there is a God or not? And he said to me, and, and his answer remained in my mind, well, because without God, human beings have no value. Life has no value. And um, I didn't believe him at the time. I thought, well, we can just, you know, make it valuable, create value for ourselves. But it did. Nevertheless, they his answer, his question, his comment um, remained in my memory. So I had come across intelligent Christians. Um, and my tutor at school, I had this wonderful tutor who was a history master. And he was a lovely, lovely man. He loved C.S. Lewis's Narnia books and The Lord of the Rings. And we used to discuss um, how much we enjoyed. We shared our love for these particular books um, over a cup of tea before a roaring log fire in his book line study. Um, at school once a week. Um, so, you know, he was a lovely Christian and a highly intelligent scholarly man. So it wasn't that I said to myself rationally, all Christians are idiots, but I, I just hadn't found, I hadn't spent enough time, I suppose, with Christians and been interested enough to get them to talk about, you know, the reasons they believed in God and in the truthfulness of the Bible. And therefore, I hadn't encountered the arguments, as I say, apart from this brief dip, which meant a lot at the time, into mere Christianity after my father died. Hmm. So you perhaps hadn't, except for that dip, yeah. really appreciated the rationality of, it, yeah, of, of Christianity. I'm wondering, it was brought to your attention that the gentleman said that you wouldn't have human value yeah. without God. I wonder if you actually looked at looked fully at the implications of the atheism that you were embracing or that you did embrace. No, I hadn't, you see, that was the point. I hadn't understood that um that that if atheism is true, if we are if we are only the accidental byproducts of a meaningless and accidental universe, I hadn't appreciated the the argument that Lewis developed against atheism, which is that if atheism is true, uh, that means all our thinking processes are simply the inevitable, unplanned result of a long chain of non-rational sort of biochemical causes that work in our brains. And therefore, how can we attach any truth or significance to our thoughts? We're simply bound to think them because of what's going on in our cerebral biochemistry, um, which discredits all thinking, including the arguments for atheism. And also, if there is no, um, you know, if we are simply the accidental byproducts of a meaningless universe, then we've got no grounds for for moral value. We can say, well, um, you know, we choose to value life, and therefore anything that, um, uh, that that enhances life is good, and anything that destroys life is evil. But that conviction is in itself a, a moral axiom which needs justification. And and unless our, our moral values, our, that that moral law written on our hearts, is rooted in God. In a, in a reality outside um, the sort of chain of physical causation of material being, we we have no no objective ground for for this conviction that that that, that uh, you know that, that good is somehow an objective category. I mean, I think that I'm sort of I suppose I'm jumping ahead really to the arguments which started making me doubt the truthfulness of atheism, but I just hadn't understood this basic point that. Um, that atheism discredits our thinking processes, cuts its own throat philosophically as a result, and deprives 
any uh, belief in moral obligation and the objectivity of moral values of any of any proper metaphysical foundation. Um, because somehow, what what's interesting about the belief, you know, that, that that you know, raping a woman or torturing a child or telling lies is wrong, is that is that these truths are somehow transcendent. I mean, they remain true whether whether we live or die, whatever culture we're part of, uh, whatever time we're born in. In you know, they remain eternally true whether we acknowledge that truth or not, whether we die or not. They still remain true, uh, as Plato believed. There they are eternal categories, and yet how can how can such categories exist except outside time and outside the material universe, uh, which therefore leads us to, to God, um, to, a, to a being or a power or reality that is outside the physical universe? Um, I mean, so that's a, that becomes a complicated philosophical argument, but, but it's a true one, and I hadn't understood it. I hadn't even thought about it um, when I was an atheist. So I had to read C.S. Lewis to to come to that realization and understanding. We're going to quickly pause our story for a moment so that I can tell you a little bit about the C.S. Lewis Institute. For over 40 years, the Institute has been committed to developing wholehearted disciples of Jesus Christ who will articulate, share, defend, and live their faith in personal and public life. Please consider making a donation to the C.S. Lewis Institute. To donate, go to our website at www.cslewisinstitute.org and click Donate. Thank you. Now let's get back to our story. So there was a, a strong, what you felt, rational presumption yeah. for the, the truth of atheism, but yeah. you, you said that you came to a point in your life where you actually met some Christians, particularly yeah. your wife, yes, that caused you to step back, yes, and rethink your atheism and perhaps yeah. think a little bit more about Christianity. Yes, talk with me about that. Okay, well, well, uh, I met Rachel uh, and I fell in love with her very quickly. We we more or less got unofficially engaged after about the fifth date. Okay, uh, so it was very swift. <laughs> And she yes. was, she she hardly had time to say she was a Christian. And um, anyway, she had Christian friends who were, who were praying for me. Who said, you know, who who started praying for me, as she of course was praying for me. So there was that going on spiritually. Um, but I said to her, look, I'm not going to become a Christian just because you're a Christian. But I will go on a journey of intellectual discovery. I want to see whether I can find answers to my questions. I like, you know, what is the evidence for God? What is the evidence for the truthfulness of Christianity? So I read C.S. Lewis' books, uh, C.S. Lewis's book, Miracles. Uh, oh, yes, actually, before I, I want to say, before I did that, I read a paper he wrote for um, the Oxford Socratic Club, which was a debating club uh, to discuss, uh, you know, God and religion and so on. There was a debating forum that was set up during the war um, in Oxford to bring Christians and atheists together in intellectual debate and argument. And Lewis was the president of the Oxford Socratic Club, and he often gave papers or talks to that club, which were then answered by atheist philosophers the next week, and then he and then he replied to them and so on. And one of these papers was called On Obstinacy and Belief, where he discusses the issue of faith. What does when Christians say you ought to have faith, what do they mean? And he said it, it, it does not mean that you ought to believe in God without any evidence. Uh, he argued that if you genuinely thought there was no evidence for God, no good arguments for God, philosophical or historical, then it was perfectly correct for you to seek out those arguments to try and find out whether Christianity and belief in God could withstand intellectual, you know, forensic intellectual examination, historical evidence, logical arguments, and so on. Uh, when Christians, when the Bible talked about you need to have faith, that's a, a, a commandment aimed at people who already know that they, who already knew that there was a God, and were being asked to believe God, uh, or challenged to have faith in God when it involved uh, believing some commandment uh, or promise of His that seemed impossible of fulfilment. The famous example, of course, being when the Lord says to Abraham, "You know, and, and, and Sarah, you're going to have a child in old age." Um, and they find that hard to believe. Um, 
But faith involves a personal relationship with a God you already believe in. But if you don't believe in God at all in the first place, then it's okay to search for the evidence. So because I knew that this was Lewis's attitude and that Lewis himself had been an atheist, I thought this is a guy in whose footsteps I can walk because he's somebody who's honest, who cares about truth, who understands what, why people are atheists. And so I can have confidence that if I read his books, I might actually uh, find answers to my questions. So I started reading Miracles, um, where the first three chapters, he proves the existence of God philosophically. And, he, and to come back to this argument that I was referring to earlier, um, where you know he says that the problem with atheism is if we're only physical beings, unplanned physical beings, the accidental byproducts of a purely physical universe, then, then all our thinking is simply the unintended and unplanned end result of the mindless movement of atoms in our brain, uh, which are just as likely to produce falsehood as truth. And therefore, we have no reason for believing in the truth of any of our conclusions. So in other words, atheism discredits thinking because it makes all our thoughts the inevitable result of our, of our cerebral biochemistry, of non-rational physical events. And as Lewis said, we, we don't accept the truthfulness of any conclusion if it can be shown to be purely the result of non-rational causes. But that's exactly what atheism uh, uh, essentially implies for all our thinking processes. So atheists cut their own throat philosophically. And then, he, and then the other great argument of Lewis's that influenced me was the argument he uses when dealing with the problem of evil, which is that we can only complain about evil if we already have a prior sense of good, just as uh, you can only tell a line is crooked because it's a deviation from a straight line and you already have the idea of a straight line in your mind. So we can only complain about evil if we have a, a standard of good in our minds, uh, of objective goodness. Um, and therefore the question then becomes, well, where does our standard of good come from? And you can't explain uh, the existence of this objective eternal standard of good written on our hearts without introducing God into the picture. Um, because again, if atheism is true, all our pr thinking processes, including our, our moral judgments, are simply an accidental byproduct of non-rational physical and chemical events to which we can attach no ultimate significance. So these were the great arguments that destroyed my atheism, more or less in three, three chapters in Miracles. And then he goes on to argue that, well, if God exists and is the creator of the universe, then clearly he can suspend the laws of nature that are his creation in the first place, um, just as an author and, and, and introduce miracles, just as uh, an author can change the ending of a, of a book and a musician, can, a, a composer can change uh, a note in a symphony. So the existence of, once you acknowledge the existence of God, all my objections to miracles and the supernatural collapsed. And then I could begin to look at the gospel stories and the story of Jesus with an open mind and not simply rejecting it because it introduced the miraculous. So that, those were some of the arguments that really um, put me on the road to Christ. So your, your, your perceived foundation in atheism, it sounds like, was crumbling yes. one argument at a time. Yeah. So these these obstacles were being brought down and so that it gave you an openness to yeah. pursue whatever Christianity was. Yeah. And so how did you pursue what that was? Did you read the Bible? What what how yeah. did you how did you kind well, of figure that out? Well, I didn't I didn't I didn't read the Bible. Uh, I mean I I was familiar with the basic story of, you know, of Jesus. Um, but, but I, I, well, of course, Lewis talks a lot about, um, uh, a lot of the, a lot of the, the truths, the, the, the stories, the, the, the claims made in the gospels about Jesus and his divinity were discussed by Lewis in his book Miracles. So for example, he says that, um, um, you know, the idea that, oh, well, um, that you can't trust the gospel writers because they were ignorant of the laws of nature. And so they believed in things like the virgin birth. Um, and he knocked that argument on the head by saying, you know, they might not understand modern physics and chemistry, but they knew perfectly well that 
babies aren't born unless a husband and a wife come together sexually. And Joseph um, knew that as well as we do, which is why he was minded to put Mary away when he discovered that she was pregnant with Jesus. Um, So a lot of the arguments that people have about the truthfulness of the gospel stories in the New Testament already being discussed by Lewis in miracles. So I didn't need to read the Bible. But I did read, I was interested in the whole issue about what evidence was there for the resurrection of Jesus. Um, And so I read a book called Who Moved the Stone? Famous classic, I'm sure that that you've heard of, Americans have heard of, um, uh, Who Moved the Stone? Um, which discusses, which was published, I think, in the, I don't know, 1930s, I think, um, where his argument, or the argument of that author, can't remember the, uh, the name of the, the author for the moment, but anyway, the, the great argument, of course, of the, of the, of the missing empty tomb. Um, you know, Jesus is crucified. He's put into the tomb. A guard is, of soldiers is put on that tomb. And then a few days later, um, you know, there's no body in the tomb. And how do you explain that other than by the resurrection? Um, uh, and so, you, you know, the, 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 if, the, if, the Jewish and, if the Jewish leaders and the Rome and Pilate and the Roman leaders had wanted to discredit Christianity as had every reason for wanting to do politically and religiously, um, all they had to do was to point to the body of Jesus in the tomb. But they couldn't do that. And why couldn't they do that? Um, and how is it that the, the Christianity takes off in a big way in Jerusalem, 40 days or so after the crucifixion, um, with 3,000 people coming to Christ as a result of Peter's first great sermon that we read about in the book of Acts? How could that happen in the city where he was crucified, where thousands of people knew exactly what had happened to Jesus if the tomb wasn't empty and there wasn't good evidence uh, for the existence of the risen Christ. So so as I started to look at historical evidence for the existence and uh, the claims of Jesus and the truthfulness of the, uh, of the gospel writers and of the early disciples, I began to see that the evidence for the truthfulness of Christianity was overwhelming, not least the evidence um, that we have from St. Paul. I mean, here is a man who is um, persecuting the early church, conv- convinced that they're, that they're liars, um, that Jesus is not God. And then he has this, conver- this famous experience of seeing Jesus on the road to Damascus, and he turns over 180 degrees and becomes the greatest preacher of the early church. And, and both he and the other apostles were prepared to lead lives that involved suffering and have ended in martyrdom. And would they have done that for something that they knew to be a lie? What was it that explained the total transformation in the character of the disciples who went from being terrified of the Roman and Jewish authorities to being heroic missionaries for the Christian faith? Um, and likewise, how do you explain the conversion of St. Paul? And then, of course, later on, I read in the book of Acts and in uh, the epistles that uh, Paul refers to 500 witnesses to the to the risen Christ, and then some of these people are still alive. If you want to check my story with them, so um, so when I began to look at the evidence, the historical evidence for the truthfulness of Christianity, I was overwhelmed. That's quite a paradigm shift. So you yeah. were you were moving through this this evidence, and yeah. during this time, obviously, you were still dating Rachel, yes, and trying to figure out things relationally. Yes. Do you? I can see a skeptic saying, well, you know, your emotional involvement yeah. with with a girl that you loved was skewing your perspective on how you were viewing the evidence. Okay. If someone accused you of that, how would you respond? Well, I would respond that the that on the contrary that the um the fact that I was in love with a Christian girl simply counterbalanced in equal measure all the emotional prejudices I had against Christianity. And one of one powerful force that was hindering my open-mindedness and, as it were, you know, countering my um, progress along the road to Christ was the worry of what would my family and what would non-Christian friends of mine think of me if I embraced Christianity. I was embarrassed 
and anxious uh, about how other people would think of me because I still had this feeling, this this purely emotional prejudice from the past that you know it was it wasn't cool to be a Christian. It would make people think you know you were intellectually second rate, um, and it was just embarrassing. I mean, I was I was. It took me a long time to admit you know to my mother um, uh, that that I was a Christian. Um, I, so 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 really, my love for for Rachel simply counterbalanced in more or less equal measure uh, the other reasons, other emotional influences on me uh, not to accept Christianity. Also, I have to say, um, uh, Rachel took me to a, 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 an Anglican service, communion service in her local church. In We were both living in London at opposite ends of London, and she took me to one of the services. There was communion service. Now, I'd never had communion. I'd never been to a communion service. And I was shocked by the liturgy. You know, this is my body broken for you. You know, take, eat. This is my blood. You know, drink it. And I thought, this is cannibalism. I was really, sh- I was really, really shocked by the, commu- by the liturgy of communion. Um, and, I, and, and, and the other thing I didn't like about that particular church service um, was, and what I didn't like about liturgy, it was the sense that I thought it's a bit like the Moonies. You know, we're chanting um, uh, 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 stuff. Um, we're just kind of um, this kind of form of brainwashing. So I didn't like going to church, and I didn't like the idea of you know you know reading your Bible every day. Uh, I thought that was a kind of irksome and rather embarrassing um, habit. So I had plenty of emotional um, reasons uh, influencing my approach, my journey. So really, it was the kind of by God's grace, if you like, the fact that Rachel was in my life simply created the opportunity i mean you know made me set out on a journey of discovery of 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 of, of, of yeah of, of exploration which i would never otherwise have done um and it just counterbalanced in equal measure um all the influences on me not to do that so i was kind of caught between two equal and opposite forces which is where the prayer comes in that people were praying for me because as we know, those of us who've made the journey and come to discover God and become Christians, there's a spiritual battle. You know, the, um, there is a supernatural force of evil. There is, you know, there is such a thing as Satan who tries to stop people coming to the God he hates. So um, that's my, that would be my answer, really. Um, mm. And also, I would challenge it. I'd say, well, look, forget about what you think are the reasons, you know, what you think about my emotions or not. I mean, look at the evidence for yourself. You know, I would challenge them to look at the evidence. Um, You know, there's good historical evidence for the existence of Jesus from non-Christian sources like the Roman historians Tacitus and Suetonius and the Jewish historian Josephus. So no serious historian doubts the existence of Jesus or that he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. Um, So, you know, how do you explain the the growth of the church? You know, why should the church spring up, led by people who make this extraordinary claim that their God was somebody who hung on a Roman cross and then was resurrected? I mean, it's the most amazing uh, statement for anyone to have ever made in the history of the world. How could they possibly have got away with it if it wasn't true? So I would just try and turn the tables and challenge them about their assumptions and about their emotional um, uh hang-ups about God, which might obscure the uh, their ability to recognize rational evidence. So I'd kind of take the fight back to them, hopefully in a sympathetic way. Yes. Wow. We'll get back to our podcast in a moment, but first I'd like to tell you about an incoming live stream event called Discipleship with C.S. Lewis. Imagine if you using the reason imagination of C.S. Lewis in the Bible, could learn to disciple others in your home, church, and neighborhood like C.S. Lewis did. Imagine if you could learn about C.S. Lewis's life story and how his classic book, Mere Christianity, became the most influential book of the 20th century. Imagine if you could learn how you can guide others to the heart of that book. A live stream event with Dr. Joel Woodruff, president of the C.S. Lewis Institute, will give you the intellectual and 
illustrative tools to explore with others why faith in Jesus Christ provides the best answers to the questions of life. Based on his new book, Discipleship with C.S. Lewis, a guide to mere Christianity for small groups and mentoring relationships, this message may be just what you've been looking for, especially as we consider how to point others to Jesus during this season of Lent. This live stream event will be held on Friday, February 26, 2021 from 8 to 9 p.m. Eastern Time. For more information and to register, go to www.cslewisinstitute.org forward slash mere discipleship. Now back to our podcast. You were becoming intellectually convinced. You were somewhat conflicted emotionally, yeah. but but you were becoming intellectually convinced. But I know Christianity and accepting Christianity as true doesn't necessarily make you a Christian or even no. want to be a Christian. No. So uh, what was it that was next in your journey? Well, I think I was, oh, yes. Well, I mean, I am... I, I, um... Among, I'm not necessarily t- 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 um, telling things in exactly the right order, but um, I was struck by Rachel took me to an informal service in a coffee house uh, uh, in, in, in Kensington, lovely muse, which had been converted to a kind of Christian coffee house, and where in the evening, Sunday evenings, they had lovely informal worship, the lovely uh, worship band, uh, 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 chap, a man called Phil Lawson Johnson, who's written many hymns, actually, modern hymns, and is a wonderful composer and musician, and he led a lovely band. And there were these lovely um, people there, uh, young men and young women, most of them professionals, and there was such beauty in their faces, and there was such beauty in that meeting um, that it touched my heart. Um, and so I, you know, I began to just, my heart just began to open up to God. Um, and there just was a moment of crisis when I was kind of caught between equal and opposite forces. Um, and I just prayed really, I I had prayed to God beforehand and I just prayed to Jesus. I said, I said, you know, if you're real, you know, come into my life and sort out this, this mess, this inner conflict, which I, which at one, which, which at a key moment I couldn't resolve. Um, and I had perfect peace about it somehow after that time of prayer and then I was with a Christian friend afterwards um, and um, you know he, he, he I explained you know I had a bit of a hang-up about the cross I wasn't quite sure there were moments when I understood what the cross was about and the atonement and there were moments when it seemed a veil came in front of my eyes and I couldn't quite grasp it anymore and um, so I was kind of blocked and anyway, he started talking to me about um, the temple and the veil in the temple of the high priest, you know, being torn in two when Jesus died on the cross, giving access uh, uh, to God. Um, and as he said that, I, a kind of understanding of what the atonement and the cross was about just fell into my head. I, oh, yes, I really, I said that's the what you find on the cross is the reconciliation of God's justice with his mercy, because sin separates us from God, um, and uh, and therefore has to be has to be uh, the penalty of sin has to be paid. God pays it through Christ in our stead, and enables us to then uh, have uh, a new relationship with God. So, so the penalty, the justice, God's justice is satisfied by Jesus' death on the cross as a representative of the human race. But at the same time, um, because he's God and can conquer death, um, his mercy is released into our lives and um, and we are able to have a relationship with God. And that's, that's of course, uh, what the resurrection is all about, that Jesus conquers death on our behalf, pays the penalty of sin and conquers death. So I understood all that suddenly. In a way which, funnily enough, didn't involve quite the same sort of reasoning that my friend was using at that time. It was a kind of separate, alternative explanation, parallel explanation to the one he was giving. But it just kind of literally fell into my head. And then I just had this experience of, it was like falling in love again, um, but much more powerfully. And so I caught a taxi home 
in a sort of daze, realizing I had now become a Christian. Um, so there was this kind of spiritual struggle, um, and I'm sure the prayers of Rachel and her friends made a difference. Um, so there were two things. There was a spiritual struggle going on for my will and my understanding, and this intellectual journey through following the footsteps of C.S. Lewis. So the two kind of came together at that moment, and uh, there I was, becoming a Christian in the sort of last days of summer of 1976. And you received a sense of peace, and I presume... Yeah, total peace. ...that, that yeah. peace has remained, in a sense, and that yeah. the pieces came together, that everything started to make sense to you intellectually, spiritually, yeah. emotionally. Yes. Things were resolving. Yes, that's quite, that's quite right, Jana. And then, of course, I began to read the Bible properly for the first time, really, seriously, and that began to make sense. And, um, yes, I mean, I've had lots of ups and downs in life since becoming a Christian, as we all do. But I've never lost, I've never for one moment doubted the existence and goodness of God. I mean, I get angry with God I, sometimes, you know, when things don't work out the way I'd like and when there are unexplained trials and sufferings or, you know, friends I love die seemingly prematurely and for no good reason. Um, so one goes on, you know, I think as a Christian, you go on having um, wrestling with God. and, and but, but, but once you have met him, once you've had an encounter with him, you know that he's real. You know, then you know life then moves on to a different level. You're now you've now got a personal relationship with your Creator and Savior, and um, you know you're challenged to trust the One who created you and who died for you, and who, because He knows the end from the beginning and created our very ability to think and reason, um, must always know better than we do. And and uh, you know, uh, and so we we must challenge, we must trust Him, even when it's when we're sort of in the dark and we don't understand why certain things are happening in our lives, we, we need to trust his sovereignty and his goodness. That's where faith comes in. That's what faith is about. It never involves, you know, a leap in the dark without evidence. Once you know that God is real, you have a personal relationship with him and you have to learn to trust him. Um, and that's what life's about, really. Wow, that's really quite beautiful. Such a transformation from where you began i'm cur <laughs> i'm curious yes you were concerned about the perception of your family and friends yes after you became a christian how yes. did that resolve well my mother we had you know we we i i i gave well i gave her a copy of my book on lewis which is a very evangelistic book um i had i sent her um essays and lectures that Lewis had given. Um, and so I did witness to her. We did witness to her, including you know, the evidence for the resurrection. Um, and I think the situation we got to was, and also she met some of our Christian friends, some of whom were very impressed, are very impressive. Well, they're all impressive, but one in particular made an impact on her. And I think she certainly respected our faith, you know, the fact that we you know, she, 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 well, she said to me early on, you know, you must, you must um, think for yourself and, and uh, you know, and, and believe what you, you know, follow what you think is true. And I respect that. And um, I think we'd got to the position not long before she passed away that she, I think in her heart of hearts, was beginning to realize that actually all this stuff is true, but she wasn't going to admit it. Um, uh, but I believe that before she passed away, she did, um, in her heart of hearts, um, uh, you know, believe in God. I mean, acknowledge, I just have reasons for believing that, which I, it's a two person, I can't really share it, but, um, I, 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 um, I, I do believe that I'm quite sure she's with, with God. And, um, uh, well, I mean, my father had passed away long, long before, before, you know, when I was 17. Um, other family members are not Christians. Um, and, uh, I go on praying for them. Um, yeah, you know, so, so I, I mean, I'm encouraged by the fact that Jesus had problems with his human family. 
and a lot, a lot of a lot of Christians are in that position, aren't we? That we have relatives we love and value who haven't yet made the journey we've made, so we keep praying for them. Um, so I would say to any Christians who have non-unbelieving relatives, just keep praying for them, keep loving them, and keep praying for them, and believe in the power of prayer. Um, so yeah, so that's where I am really. And so, if if there are those Philip who are listening yeah. today who might be curious, yes, uh, they've been inspired or challenged by what you your own story of atheism, especially yeah. as a an extremely brilliant man. It, it does challenge the stereotypes of Christians as as non intellectual or, or anti intellectual kinds yeah. of people. I wonder what you might say to them. Well, I'd say to I, I'd say to any atheist, any unbeliever, I'd say, look, um, you know, do you care about truth? Are you willing to ask yourself, um, you know, is there evidence? Is there good evidence? Philosophical arguments, historical arguments, scientific arguments for the existence of a of an intelligent and rational and good creator God? And is there historical evidence for the existence of Jesus and the truthfulness of the gospels, the stories that they tell about Jesus? And is there good evidence for the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus at a point that that, uh, suggests that actually he is divine? Um, So I would would say to them, well, you know, if you care about truth, then, then why not go on a journey of discovery? Why not try and find out whether there is any evidence for for the beliefs that I hold and other Christians hold? Um, and I would say, I, and I would say to them, um, you know, whether it's a big question, isn't it? Whether we're just accidental byproducts of a ultimately meaningless universe, and all we have to look forward to are, are, our, are our years in this life, followed by a death and oblivion. Or whether there actually is a creator, and there is such a thing as the supernatural, and there is such a thing as eternity. And are we going to be with God in eternity, or are we going to be eternally separated from the source of all life and truth and goodness and beauty and so forth? It's a really important issue. Um, and I would suggest that they might try reading C.S. Lewis, try meeting Mere Christianity, which is the um, where you know his radio broadcasts, which were addressed to a general audience um, uh, during the Second World War, and, and and starts off with what is the evidence for the existence of God? I would suggest that they read C.S. Lewis if that if he might be a thinker who could help them. Uh, and I and I would recommend other books. Uh, there's a book called I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist by Norman Geisler and Frank Turek. That's quite a good book to read. Where these are two Christian philosophers and scientists and theologians who, who set forth the arguments and the evidence for the existence of God and the, and the truthfulness of, of the Gospels, um, uh, and there are lots of other books um, uh, along the same lines. There's another book by um, a British scientist uh, and mathematician called Dr. John Lennox, called God's Undertaker, um, where he looks at the scientific evidence for the existence of God. So, you know, I would just challenge them to to do that and to visit websites like bethinking.org, the website of the Oxford-based universities and colleges, Christians Fellowship, based in Oxford, where there's lots of material um, on, on these issues um, and equivalents in America. So I would just, uh, well, I would just challenge them to go on a journey of discovery, you know, and if you don't find the arguments and the evidence convincing, okay, that's fine, at least you made the effort to try and see what is what is the truth um so that's my that's that's what i would say to them go go on a journey oh and the other thing i'd mention is um uh, the example of lee strobel uh, lee strobel is uh, used to be um the uh, i think he was the law editor or law correspondent for um the chicago tribune and an investigative journalist with an excellent mind i think he had a law degree from yale and um, he went, he didn't believe in God until his wife uh, had a conversion experience and became a Christian. And so he set out on a journey of discovery and has produced these books, The Case for the Creator, uh, The Case for Christ, where he 
describes all the interviews he had with theologians and scientists and philosophers along uh, when he was making his journey uh, of discovery, uh, and uh, and he became a Christian. And in fact, there's been a film that's been made about his 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 life, his journey to Christianity. So there's lots of material out there for those who care about the search for truth and are willing to embark on it. So that will be my challenge. You know, if you believe in truth, well, um, put it to the test. Put put Christianity and belief in God to a to a to the test, and with an open mind, try and see whether there's any good evidence. That's that's that will be my my invitation and my challenge. Mm, that's excellent. And as far as Christians, I know you've, if you had a word to say for them yeah. uh, or to them, I know you mentioned um, to keep praying and yeah. to keep loving. And it, it, I also am reminded of what you thought when you saw those Christians in the coffee house, you described yes. them as being rather lovely yes. and that there was a beauty Yes. To them, uh, I wondered if you could speak to the Christian. Well, um, yes, I would say, dear brother and sister, um, first of all, don't despair. Um, you know, the word of God says that the prayer of a righteous man uh, or woman has great power and achieves wonderful results. Uh, so that's a promise that, and we're righteous through the blood of Jesus. So that's a promise that you can stand upon um, to, in prayer. So pray, and and one of the things I I also just pray by name for your loved ones. Um, I also include them when I pray the Lord's Prayer. You know, it's a, you know, Your kingdom come, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, I often pray, Well, Lord, Your kingdom come, Your will be done in the lives of those I love and care about who don't yet know You. That's a powerful prayer because it's part of the Lord's Prayer. And that is the prayer of Jesus, the prayer of God, the Son incarnate. So, so that has, so that prayer, the whole of the Lord's prayer, has great power. So, so the the first and most important thing I would say um, to my fellow Christians, to my fellow believers, is that you know believe in the power of prayer. It's an incredible weapon that of warfare, of spiritual warfare that God has given us. That 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 the enemy uh, does everything in his power to make us disbelieve in. Um, and he wouldn't do that if, if if he didn't recognize the power of prayer. So I give you that thought. So pray, pray, pray every day. Pray for those you love who don't yet know the Lord. Just pray for each one of them by name and claim their salvation. Jesus has paid the ransom price for them. So claim them um, and uh, never despair and um, and be good at listening. Um, uh, yeah, listen, try and find out what makes them tick and why they have the views that they have and then pray into that. Uh, you don't necessarily, you're not, you won't necessarily achieve a great deal by arguing with them. I find arguing with relatives is not an easy thing to do. Um, and and uh, that, you know, but don't be discouraged if you find that arguing with them doesn't seem to get anywhere. Pray for them and pray that God would bring other people into their lives, experiences into their lives, books, uh, whatever, that, that might speak to them. And the Holy Spirit knows them and loves them and knows how to reach them. God knows how to reach them. So just pray, listen, love and pray. Um, and obviously, if you do have relatives or friends or loved ones who are open minded uh, and, and prepare to engage or to listen to arguments and 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 read books and so on. Well, then lend them books and um, send them tapes or links to good websites where there are other testimonies. Um, I, so I think actually sending people links to good testimonies that might influence them is another good thing to do. So there it is. That's just a a few a few thoughts that I, that I would share. That's wonderful. And hopefully this podcast will be a good resource for those stories, those testimonies that, um, that you're being, yours being one of the uh, beautiful one. And if I could co-op the English word, you know, your, your testimony is just quite lovely and, but yet incredibly profound and very, very substantive. So Philip, I appreciate so much your being on the podcast today and, and taking us on your investigative journey, your your journey of discovery to the one who made you. 
it's obviously made a big difference in your life and I I do pray that it will make a difference in the in the lives of those and who are actually listening. So yeah. thank you so much for for coming on. Well, thank you for having me, Yana. Thanks for tuning into the Side B podcast to hear Philip's story. You can find out more about Philip by visiting his website at bethinking.org. I've included that in the episode notes for your reference. For questions and feedback about this episode, you can reach me by email at thesidebpodcast at cslewisinstitute.org. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If so, subscribe and share this new podcast with your friends and social network. In the meantime, I'll be looking forward to seeing you next time where we'll be listening to the other side.